Thanks, Wayne. How's everyone doing? Good to see you all. Good to be here. Before we get started, uh, I want to celebrate with you. Uh, yesterday we had our crocheting cuppa ladies event. And we've got a photo here of, not all of them, but a bunch of the ladies who were there. It looks like they had a great time. Uh, with over 20 people who came, uh, most of them weren't from church. Uh, so it was really wonderful to connect with some of those ladies. Uh, and, and do be praying that hopefully we'll see them over Easter, the big question series, and into the future. Uh, and, and be praying for the men and meet this weekend. We've already got a few fellas uh, registered, not from church, so that's really exciting. Please be inviting your friends and praying for them. How about I pray, thank God for uh, crocheting kappa, pray for our time today. Heavenly Father, thank you for yesterday and all those ladies who so loved their friends and neighbours that they invited them to a church event. Father, I pray that as they bonded over crochet and a cup of tea that you would be working in lives so that they might come back to church over Easter, over the Big Question series or whenever it is and that you might bring them to salvation in Jesus. Father, we pray this also for the Men and Meat event coming up, that many would come along and not only enjoy a great barbecue, uh, but learn of a great Saviour. And Father, now as we look at Mark chapter 12 together, as we encounter our great Saviour, please give us a real sense of who He is, with all authority, in command of all things, wise beyond His years, able to judge the religious leaders of the time. Father, I pray that as we hear Jesus speak, we would hear him speak to us so that we might be changed as well. Amen. I've got a little bit of a treat for you guys this morning. Uh, I've got a little video to watch. So uh, we'll get that playing. If it jumps and stutters, you'll have to forgive us. Uh, But I think you'll get the main idea. Thanks, Ben. What you do not smell is called iocane powder. It is odorless, tasteless, dissolves instantly in liquid and is a little more deadly poison known to man. the poison. The battle of wits has begun. It ends when you decide and we both drink and find out who is right and who is dead. But it's so simple. All I have to do is divine from what I know of you. Are you the sort of man who would put the poison into his own goblet or his enemies? Now, a clever man would put the poison into his own goblet because he would know that only a great fool would reach for what he was given. I'm not a great fool, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you must have known I was not a great fool. You would have counted on it, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You've made your decision then? (laughs) Not remotely, because Iocane comes from Australia, as everyone knows. And Australia is entirely peopled with criminals. And criminals are used to having people not trust them, as you are not trusted by me, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. Wait till I get going! Where was I? Australia. Yes, Australia. And you must have suspected I would have known the powder's origin, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're just stalling now. You'd like to think that, wouldn't you? You've beaten my giant, which means you're exceptionally strong. So you could have put the poison in your own goblet, trusting on your strength to save you, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. 
But you've also bested my Spaniard, which means you must have studied. And in studying, you must have learned that man is mortal. So you would have put the poison as far from yourself as possible, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're trying to trick me into giving away something. It won't work. It has worked. You've given everything away. I know where the poison is. Then make your choice. I will. And I choose. What in the world can that be? What? Where? I don't see anything. Oh, well, I, I could have sworn I saw something. I, no matter. <laughs> What's so funny? I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. First, let's drink. Me from my glass and you from yours. guessed wrong. You only think I guessed wrong. That's what's so funny. I switched glasses when your back was turned. Ha <laughs> ha, you fool. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia. But only slightly less well known is this. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> I'm no one to be trifled with. That is all you ever need know. To think, all that time it was Shawcup that was poisoned. They were both poisoned. I spent the last few years building up an immunity to Iocane powder. There we go. Sorry, live stream. I was just saying it's the Princess Bride. You should watch it, but after church. I, I love that clip. I love that whole movie. But that clip, that's my favorite part of the whole movie. Uh, and there's a lot of great parts in the movie, but I just love how he's laughing and laughing and laughing and kills over dead. And, and it's, such a, um, it's such a good um, illustration for being in complete control of a situation when your opponent thinks they're in control, right? So the man in black is just sitting there, unfazed by every question, uh, even when our country got, you know, slagged on, unfazed. Even when he swaps the cups, unfazed. Even when they drink together, unfazed. Because he's in complete control. Even though little Vizzini there, he thinks he knows what's going on. Even though he thinks he's in control. It's like Vizzini there is playing checkers, and the man in black is playing chess. He's in complete control of that whole battle of wits. Just on a completely different level. Now, sometimes I feel like I have battles of wits. Not with, you know, anyone here or someone in the street. Not even with my wife or with my kids. I feel like often I'm having a battle of wits with Jesus. In my own mind, I'll say things like, you know, I've been to church this week. I've been to growth group this week. So the rest of the time is kind of mine. I can do what I want with all my downtime. Or even, you know, Jesus, you... I've given you this part of my life, I've given you this part of my life, but this little part of my life here, I want to keep that for me. This little sin, this little indulgence, this little idol, I want to keep it for me. I, I do these constantly, it, like without even thinking about it, I'm constantly trying to outwit Jesus with different parts of my life. Do you do, you do that as well? Maybe, maybe not as explicitly or verbosely in your mind, but... Are there parts of your life where you're trying to keep them from Jesus, trying to say, no, no, Jesus, you don't understand. It's better if I look after this bit. 
it's better if I take control of this bit and you can control the rest. You can control that bit over there. Do you experience that as well? What, what we have in Mark chapter 12 is three groups of men who come up to Jesus who challenge him to a battle of wits. Just like I do, just like I think we all do. And so, the reason why I think Mark chapter 12 will speak to us all today, because the outcome of these battles of wits with Jesus show us what the outcome will be whenever we try, whenever we try to wrestle control from Jesus of our own lives. So, what I hope to show you today is that Jesus has all authority, complete control over not just our lives, but the whole cosmos, because He has the authority of the Son of God. So, that's where we're going today. Let's just jump straight into it. And as I jump into our first point today, I want to give you a quick recap to give you a bit of a sense of what's been happening the last few days to Jesus. So grab your Bibles out, have them in front of you. We're going to start in Mark chapter 11 while I recap. We'll continue in Mark chapter 12. So make sure you can see what's happening in front of you. Mark 11, 12, 13 takes place over the course of three days. In Mark chapter 11, it's Sunday morning, Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the donkey, comes in as the king, entering the city of kings, and he goes all the way up to the temple, has a look around, turns around, goes home for the night. That's Sunday. Monday is the whole Jesus curses the fig tree, then goes to the temple, flips tables, calls out everyone in the temple, and then goes home. The next day, Tuesday morning, the disciples see the withered fig tree, then they go to the temple again and somewhat understandably, the rulers of the temple, they come up to Jesus and they say, hey Jesus, who gave you the authority to flip tables and yell at us yesterday? By what authority do you do these things? They want to know, how can Jesus condemn the temple worship? And then the rest of chapter 12 and 13 take place on that same Tuesday, all right? So, what's happened just before what we're going to read, the leaders have confronted Jesus and said, hey, what gives? And it's actually quite important to see who has come and spoken to Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 27, it says, it's the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. Now, why is that significant? Because those three groups make up the Jewish ruling council. They were the head honchos, the top dogs of Jewish religion of the day. It'd be kind of like uh, after church, the whole leadership team and the whole staff team came to have a word with you, right? That's kind of what's happening. The guys uh, in charge of the whole thing come up to Jesus and have this conversation with him. And that's really important because of the parable Jesus tells right at the start of chapter 12. So let me summarise that. Jesus uh, tells a story, we heard it uh, from that monkey this morning, uh, a man builds a vineyard, he hires that vineyard out to tenants, and when harvest time comes, he sends his servants to collect uh, what is due from the tenants, okay, to collect the rent, the, the fruit of what's been grown there. And the tenants, they kill servant after servant after servant, they beat them, they kill them, until finally, only the son is left, the heir, the, the one and only son. And the man's like, well, surely they'll respect my son, sends the son, but no, the tenants go, now's our opportunity to claim this vineyard for themselves. I, I can't imagine what is going through the head that they're thinking this, but they rise, they kill the son, and take the vineyard for themselves. 
And then Jesus says, what's the owner going to do? He's going to come in judgment, in force, to kill those tenants and give it to someone else. What's Jesus saying here? Well, we heard it a little bit. Jesus is saying, those who reject the Son will be punished. But there's a little more nuance to that, right? So look at Mark chapter 12, verse 12, how that Jewish ruling council see that parable. Verse 12, look at it with me. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders, that same group, they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Jesus is speaking against anyone who would reject the Son, that is himself. But specifically, he's saying, you Jewish leaders... You rulers, you're the tenants. You were meant to care for Israel, my vineyard. You were meant to care for them and love them and you were meant to then give the fruit back to God. Offer that fruit back to God. And so God sent prophet after prophet and now finally God has sent his son and you were going to reject his son. Now remember, this is the Tuesday before Jesus died. Just a few more days and these men will send Jesus to his death. They have absolutely rejected the Son. And the the Jewish rule, what's going on with them? They're so focused on maintaining their control. So focused on keeping the vineyard for themselves. Keeping the temple worship and the religious regulations for themselves. That when Jesus comes in and says, no, what you're doing is an abomination to God and flips tables. They try to kill him. They reject him. You see, Jesus condemns the fruitless temple. That's what we saw last week. This week, Jesus condemns the fruitless leaders of Israel. And so then, Jesus has condemned all of Judaism at this point, their worship, their leaders. That's the whole kit, the whole deal, the whole shebang bang. Jesus has just condemned the religion of the Jews, their law-keeping to be saved by condemning its practices and its leaders. And so there is a real warning for us here today. We're not the rulers of the Jews, we're not that ruling council, but there is a real warning for us here. And we heard it earlier today from a monkey, but uh, maybe I'll say it and it might come with a bit more weight, right? Don't reject Jesus. Do not reject Jesus. Why? Well, verse 10, haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvellous in our eyes. That stone that the leaders rejected, that Jesus who you may reject, don't reject him because he is that cornerstone of God's new temple, his new community, the church. And by extension then, the whole of the cosmos. He is the foundation stone through which everything else is built on. And to reject the stone is to reject life itself. To say no to Jesus is to throw your lot in the tenants who will be judged and condemned and killed. So do not reject Jesus. If you're here today and you're investigating Jesus, you're trying to figure out, is this Jesus worth following? He absolutely is. Absolutely is. He will change your life for the better in every possible way. He will secure for you hope for eternity. But the flip side is, the warning is, if you choose to reject him, he will reject you. Just like those religious leaders were rejected. 
So hear that warning today. But let's keep moving on in chapter 12. So the last three days, Jesus has been causing a lot of trouble, uh, flipping tables, attacking the Jewish religion, condemning the ruling council. It's kind of like Jesus has walked into Parliament House and he stood up on a table in the foyer and he's just started calling out anything and everything he sees. A politician walks past, he calls them out. In fact, he's not just attacking people, he's attacking the whole institution. This whole government is corrupt and it doesn't work and it's falling down. That's kind of what Jesus has done by going to the temple and doing these things. Now, I'm not saying our government is corrupt or anything, it's just to get your imagination going. Jesus has gone to the centre of Jewish life and rule and condemned it in front of everyone. And so, imagine how people are feeling. The the crowd kind of loves it, which, if you did that in Parliament House, I think the crowd probably would love it to some degree, right? The crowd here, they're like, yes, Jesus, we love it, what you're saying is amazing, it's so good, but the ruling council, they can't stand it. And, And so, if you did that in Parliament, I imagine security would be on it pretty quick and you'd be pretty roughed up before you left. Is that what this ruling council is going to do? They're going to send in the troops, the guards? Well, no, they're afraid of the crowd. That's what it said in verse 12. Because of the crowd, they left him alone and went away. But they haven't completely left him alone. They've gone to scheme and plan. What are we going to do? We can't arrest him. We can't beat him and flog him because the crowd will turn on us. What do we do? And so they come up with another tactic, and they have actually quite a good idea, except they don't recognise who Jesus is. Here's their idea. They, they, they realise Jesus is from the outback, right? He's from up whoop whoop in Galilee. He's from Nowheresville. And he's a teacher, yeah, but he's an outback teacher, so he can't be that good. These ruling council, they're the scholars of the day. They've got degrees on degrees on doctorates on doctorates on doctorates, right? They're law professors, they're the judges, and Jesus is just some country hick legal studies teacher. And so they're thinking to themselves, wait a minute, we, we don't have to destroy him physically, we can destroy him with our knowledge. We can trap him up on the intellectual stage. And so what the ruling council do is they send out these groups from within them to go battle Jesus, a battle of wits, like we saw in the Princess Bride, they challenge Jesus to a battle after battle after battle. It's like an academic decathlon for those who uh, watch Billy Madison like I do. Uh, Intellectual battle, intellectual battle, intellectual battle, all designed to trap, trick and destroy Jesus' credibility in front of the crowd. And so that's exactly what they do. They send out their first contenders in verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. These are the first contenders, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Usually a group, two groups that can't agree on anything, that are constantly fighting and warring with each other, but now they've found some common ground. They want to destroy Jesus. And so they come with their question, verse 14, they came, and, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? They're just really laying it on there, aren't they? They're really buttering Jesus up. Hey, Jesus, you know how you always say the right thing, no matter who it's to, no matter who's listening, you always say the right thing? Well, we've got a question for you. 
and you better say the right thing. And the question is really a trap. Should we pay the taxes? If Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes, the crowd will turn against Jesus because they hate the Romans. They hate the the rulers who they have to pay their taxes to. If Jesus says, pay your taxes, they'll be like, oh, stuff you, Jesus. We don't want to do that. Don't know the Romans are oppressing us? And if the crowd turns on Jesus, the council has no troubles arresting him. But if Jesus says, no, don't pay your taxes, well, that's just as much trouble because they'll just go to the Romans and say, hey, you know those taxes that you love us paying? Well, Jesus told us not to. You want to go arrest him and kill him now? It's a lose-lose for Jesus. They've completely trapped him. But they've forgotten who Jesus is. Well, actually, they haven't forgotten. They haven't recognised who Jesus is. They've got the wrong understanding of Jesus and Jesus' response shows us that while they're playing checkers, he's playing chess. He's on a completely different level. He says, hand me a coin. Gets a coin, says, whose face is this? Just like our coins today, we have Queen Elizabeth on our coins. They had their ruler on their coins, Caesar. Jesus says, whose face is this? Well, it's Caesar's. Well, then it's Caesar's coin. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Jesus is saying, you live under the authority of Caesar. You live in his realm. It is right for you to obey and honour his authority. And so pay him his taxes. Pay him his dues. doesn't matter how cruelly he treats you, you are under his authority, pay him his taxes. But more importantly, don't you recognise that like a coin, you bear someone's image. You were made in the image of God. Give back to God what is God's. You belong to God. Don't you see that you, you coming and trying to attack me, you living by these rules to just uh, make yourself right with God... No, 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 that's not what life's about. You've got to give yourself completely to God. And you have not done that. You're wasting your time attacking and rejecting his son. Jesus is calling these men out for not giving themselves to God while they're trying to trip and track him. Trip and trap him. Jesus is on a whole different level. He's like the man in black, stays cool, calm, in control the whole time. They have absolutely nothing on him. Jesus wins the first battle, 1-0. That's it. They walk away with the tails between their legs. And so the second group comes up then in verse 18. This group, they're called the Sadducees. And Mark tells us everything we need to know about these guys. Okay, you ready? Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. That's verse 18. All right? The Sadducees say there is no resurrection. Why are they called the Sadducees? Well, they don't believe in the resurrection, so they are sad, you see. I became a pastor to tell that joke. That's not true, but, you know, the perks of being up front. The Sadducees, they don't believe that there'll be a resurrection from the dead. They believe you live, you die, that's it. And so they come to Jesus with a hypothetical question designed to kind of show how ridiculous the idea of resurrection is. And I won't read it, I'll just summarise it. They come to Jesus and they quote the law from Deuteronomy 25. They say, if a man marries and he dies before having children, his brother ought to marry the widow so that he can have children and continue the line. So the hypothetical situation is a man marries a woman and dies before children, his brother marries and dies, his brother marries and dies seven times and the woman dies without having children. 
Or Jesus, when the dead are raised, whose wife will she be? You can kind of understand the ridiculousness of the situation, right? Will she be the first man's wife? Because she married him first. But she also married the other seven. So will, will she be the last man's wife? Because that's who she was married last at the end. Well, what about the rest? Who will she be married to in the resurrection? That's, that's the crux of the question. Jesus, answer us this question about the resurrection. It doesn't make sense. See, your whole idea about the resurrection doesn't make sense. Stop telling people you're going to be raised from the dead. But again, Jesus is not trapped, he's not tricked, he's in complete control. And so have a look at verse 24 with me at his response. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read the book of Moses? In the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. They're on on two accounts, right? They don't understand the Scriptures or the power of God. They don't understand the power of God because when God raises the dead, it's not like He just raises you back to life to live in this world as normal again, because if He did, yeah. Who's that woman going to be married to? No, no, the power of God is to raise us to a new heavens and a new earth, to a new creation, to a new order of things. God is going to make all things new. That's the power of God, so that when we're raised to life, this new creation, there'll be no more marriage. Why is that? Well, because marriage is a signpost in this world for a heavenly reality that we'll experience in the next Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says, marriage points to the relationship between Jesus and his church. Marriage is a signpost that points to that. And in the new creation, in the resurrection, we won't need a signpost because we'll experience it physically. We will be with our Saviour and Lord Jesus. We won't need to be married to remind us of what that relationship is. We will experience it firsthand. So there'll be no more need to be married. Do you remember 3D movies? Like 10 years ago, you'd go to the movies, they'd give you special glasses, and you'd watch these movies in 3D. And some of them, they'd kind of make you feel sick. Some of them were all right. But they're really out of favour now. It's kind of like seeing a movie in 3D. You'd go, you'd put your special glasses on, you could see 3D, but only within the bounds of the screen. And it, it wasn't the real thing. You knew the image was flat. It was just a trick. It was, it was a sign of the real thing. When you go outside and you experience 3D reality, that was the real thing. It's like marriage is the 3D glasses that you need to see the sign. But the new creation is the real thing. You step outside into the light, And there's real depth that you experience. That's what Jesus is saying. The power of God is such that things aren't tricking your brain into thinking they're 3D. It is the complete reality. You have misunderstood the power of God. But secondly, they've misunderstood Scripture. See, the Sadducees, they they didn't believe the whole of the Old Testament. They only believed the first five books of the Bible. And they said, well, resurrection's not in the first five books, so it's nonsense. And do you notice Jesus quotes from the book of Moses, one of the first five books of the Bible? He says, 
it, the scriptures don't say God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, it says God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because God is not the God of the dead, but is the God of the living. These men will be resurrected to new life. You have misunderstood what God has said in the scriptures. You have not paid attention to God's word. You have not carefully read it. You are badly mistaken. They are wrong, slam dunk, Jesus wins 2-0. They go away with their tails between their legs too. Now comes the last battle wits. The last one. And this one's a little bit different. A representative from the last group approaches Jesus. A teacher of the law. Some of your Bibles might say a scribe or a lawyer. This, this is a guy who knows the law back to front. He is literally a law professor. He teaches the law. He's a teacher of the law. He taught the law. He practiced the law. He was a lawyer. This guy knows the law. And so he comes to Jesus with a question about the law. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Okay, simple enough question, but quite complex to answer. There are over 600 Jewish laws. Which will Jesus choose? Which one's most important? What's Jesus going to say? But again, Jesus shows his complete control and authority over the situation. Look at verse 19 with me. Not verse 19, sorry, verse 29. The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus has such an incredible grasp of God's law. Far better than any of the teachers of the law, any of the scribes, any of the lawyers. Jesus gets it so well that he doesn't just choose the most important command, but he sums up the entirety of the law in two commands. Love God, love others. Love God with all your being, with everything that you are and everything you have at your disposal, use it to love God. And then, love your neighbour the way you love yourself. You know how selfish we are? That's how selfless we should be. How much we love ourselves, that's how we should love others. And the teacher of the law, he has a really good response. Look at it. Verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is the one, that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, that's a really fascinating thing for that man to say because yesterday Jesus flipped the temple, flipped the tables in the temple and said, what you're doing here is wrong. And now this man's saying there is something more important than all the sacrifices we do in this temple. It is love. To love God and love your neighbour is more important than any sacrifice, than any prayer, than any cleansing or obedience you might have to the law, you ought to love God first and foremost. In fact, you ought to love God and have those things flow out of that. And so that is what Jesus was really condemning in the temple. You do all these things, but you lack love. 
That is what is wrong with you. That is what is wrong with this whole system that you set up for yourself. You do these things out of obligation and duty and law-keeping and not because you love God and not because you love your neighbour. And Jesus commends this man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You get it, you're not in the kingdom of God, you haven't recognised who I am yet, but you're not far, you understand love is more important. So then Jesus wins that third battle. 3-0, what's the outcome of all these three battles? Verse 20, uh, sorry, verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Jesus has won. They have nothing left in the barrel. That's it. No more attacks. They just sulk and go away. Jesus has demonstrated his complete and utter authority over the whole situation. He is the man in black, coolly, calmly responding, playing a whole different game while they think they've got him on the back foot. They're being condemned and judged. Jesus overwhelmingly demonstrates his complete authority. Which is interesting because remember at the end of chapter 11, what question did they ask him? By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you the authority to tell us how to worship in the temple? Jesus will answer that question, but first he demonstrates his complete authority. He shows them he has complete authority over all things over the temple, over their religion. These leaders are exposed to be spiritually bankrupt, empty, poor, nothing in the tank for God. They haven't given themselves to God, they haven't listened to His Word, and they have lost their love for God. Spiritually bankrupt. Unlike the widow at the very end of the chapter, who is physically bankrupt when she gives her last two copper coins but spiritually rich, these men are spiritually bankrupt. And so we need to beware of spiritual bankruptcy. Just like these men, we can fall into that trap too because people like to do, we like to do. Doing things gives us a sense of our worth and value. And so the religious leaders thought the doing, uh, obeying the law, doing the temple worship stuff, doing my prayers and things... That's what God wants and we so easily fall into that trap but it leads to spiritual bankruptcy. We don't do to earn God's favour. God has shown his favour on us and so we do. And so beware of spiritual bankruptcy. You might need to look at your own heart and go, is this my attitude? Do I love God? Do I love Jesus? Do I come to church out of love for God and for my neighbour? Do I go to growth group to hear God speak to me and to pay attention to what he says? Do I serve this body, the church, because my life isn't my own, it is my saviour's? What I think we witness here in chapter 12 is the anti-disciple, the opposite of a disciple. Not someone who says they hate God, but someone who refuses to give their life to God. Because that's what a disciple is, someone who gives their life to God. This is the anti-disciple, someone who keeps their life for themselves. Now, if you're here today and you recognise that in your own life, yes, Tim, I, I have lost that love. I just do. 
Not because Jesus loves me, but because I want to earn his love. Then there is absolutely good news for you today. In a few days, Jesus goes to die on the cross for your sin, for your loveless obligation. He dies so that you might be saved, so that you might live to honour God out of your salvation. And so pray to Jesus, seek forgiveness. Ask him to grow in you love, to help you experience his love so you too might love. Ask him to help you pay attention to his words so that you might hear what he has to say and believe him at his word. Ask that he would help you let go of control of your own life and give it back over to him. There is absolutely forgiveness and grace in all this. But we need to check our hearts so that we're ready to repent if there is sin there. All right, let's... um, Let's draw to a close by looking at Jesus' next step. They've come and attacked Jesus and attacked Jesus and attacked Jesus. Now Jesus has one final word to say to them. Verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. What's going on here? What's Jesus attacking them for? Isn't the son of David a good thing to call the Messiah? Well, yes it is, but it is only a part of who Jesus is. You see, the religious rulers and religious leaders, they consider Jesus only human terms. He's a country hick teacher. We're going to destroy him with our scholarly brains. But Jesus is saying, I'm much more than a man. I am much, much more than a man. Let let me show you. David writes this psalm, Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And it's a psalm that Israel would sing as they enthroned a new king. Right? So they would sing it to their king. So let's look at the words of the psalm. The Lord, that is God, God himself, said to my Lord, that is the new reigning king, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. God says to his king, I will give you authority, I will win your battles, I will make you my king. That's what they're singing. But when David writes this, he is king. And you've got to remember, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God has promised that someone from the line of David will rule on his throne forever. Now, is David saying that the one that comes from his line will rule on the throne forever? Well, how can he call his child Lord, or his grandchild Lord, or his great-great-great-great-grandchild Lord? No, no, you can't think of it in these human terms because it doesn't make sense. Why would David say that to one of his offspring? What's really happening is... David sees the Messiah as having the authority of God because God says, sit at my right hand. David recognises that the Messiah isn't simply the son of David, but he is the son of God, with the authority of God, authority from heaven. And so David says, uh, sorry, Jesus says, these rulers only considered me in human terms and that's why they don't understand my authority, but in reality, I am the son of God My authority comes from God. Why can I flip tables in the temple? Why can I condemn religious rulers? 
because I am the Son of God. That's where his authority comes from. He has answered that question in the end, but only after demonstrating that he really does have authority. That is how Jesus can see to the hearts of the religious, religious rulers. That's how God can see to the hearts of us. That's how he can see to the heart of the widow. That's how he can call out spiritual bankruptcy because he has authority from heaven. And that's what we really need to see in Mark chapter 12. Jesus is the Son of God. He comes with the authority of the Father. He is the one in complete control of all things, including our lives. So don't wrestle him for control of your life. We can't win that battle of wits with Jesus. We've just seen that there's no hope of us winning any battles of wits with Jesus. But we can't because Jesus has the authority of God. He commands our lives. We owe our lives to him twice over. He made us. He saved us. So don't try and outwit Jesus. Or you too will be rejected like the owners of the vineyard. Jesus has all authority of the Son of God. Let me finish with with this. Uh, Jesus, with all the authority of the Son of God, calls out the spiritually bankrupt. He says to be religious without love is to be rejected. And so we may need to repent of these things today, but remember, Jesus goes to the cross for us. These religious rulers, they do get their way, they do kill Jesus, but that's actually God's plan so that we might be forgiven even if we are living in the same sin they are. All we have to do is recognise it and come to Jesus to be saved. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us today, the way that you have shown us that not only does Jesus have all authority, but his authority comes from heaven. His authority comes from you. Father, may we submit our lives to Jesus. Help us to repent of the times when we haven't, to turn and seek forgiveness and live anew, submitting our lives to Jesus again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.